And now we're almost ready to serve up our main course for tonight, Marcus Samuelson. And who better to do that than his dear friend and mine as well, Donna Pierce. Oh, all right. Donna helped arrange this program for Marcus to be with and for him to be with us tonight. And Donna has worked as a test. Her background is not, she's not chopped liver. That's all I can say. Donna <laughs> worked as a test kitchen director and assistant food editor for the Chicago Tribune. I hope you're, I haven't looked through who's attending, but frequently Carol Haddix, the retired Tribune editor who hired you, is typically watching our programs tonight. So I hope she's on tonight. Anyway, uh, Donna worked as assistant food editor for the Chicago Tribune. She was a, a test kitchen director, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Her syndicated column, Black America Cooks, has appeared in the Chicago Defender and other national Black publications. Donna has a visiting fellowship at Harvard University and has researched Black cooks at the Schlesinger Lab Library for her upcoming book on Ebony's first food editor, Frida Tonight. Tonight, Donna will interview Marcus or Chef Samuelson for about 30 minutes, then turn the questions over to you. She'll explain how we'll go about that, how you can ask questions. We'll be ending at 6 p.m. and Donna, come on down. <laughs> Hi, thanks so much, Scott, and, and thanks for everybody for being here. I'm so, I've been so excited about this opportunity to interview Marcus, and he's someone that I have um, known and respected for a long time, and have appreciated watching him kind of move through the um, um, all of the different twists and turns, and all as as a black chef. So I'll just no one everybody knows him, but I'll give you a, a quick. I'll run through this introduction for someone who might be visiting from Mars today. But <laughs> entrepreneur, and he's an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and culinary star with a long list of credits, TV and book, and uh, his most famous restaurant. I think, I, I don't have the numbers, is Red Rooster in New York, uh, an amazing restaurant in Harlem. And that's where Marcus lives now. His, his latest book, The Rise, explores the future and pays homage to cooks on whose shoulders black chefs have stood and the migration stories that made the cuisine so diverse and rich. And, and Marcus can tell us about his background, but when his mother, the most amazing part, and this was the part he had to prove to me very at the very beginning of, of learning about him and hearing about this black chef who was uh, winning awards at a, a, a Swedish restaurant or at a Nordic restaurant. When his mom died in 1972, he was born in 71. He and his sister were adopted by a, a Swedish family and brought to Gothenburg, Sweden, where his grandmother, as all of us, a lot of us can talk about our grandmothers, taught him how to cook. He went on to study at the Culinary Institute of Gothenburg and apprenticed in Switzerland and then in France from 92 to 94. In 94, he moved to the U.S., and to apprentice at Aquavit, a New York restaurant a, a very, uh, featuring seasonal Nordic cuisine. He became partner of Aquavit in 97. In 95, he became the youngest chef 
ever to receive a three-star restaurant review from the New York Times. And that was from a Nordic restaurant. In 2003, he opened the New York restaurant Ringo, which served Japanese-influenced American food. And in 2005, his Inner Chef series first aired of the Discovery Home Channel. Um, his, he founded the Food Republic in 2011, uh, Jenny's Supper Club in 2012, and he's the author of the following books, Aquavi, and there's a Swedish cookbook before Aquavia. The new, and I would have to have him pronounce it for me. The new, the new, the soul of a new cuisine, and that's the book for me that made the difference, and still makes the difference, and still makes my um, just makes me so grateful for him. The New American Table, and yes, Chef a memoir. He's also and the Swedish cookbook he will speak of. And he's received many awards and honors beginning in 1999 with the Rising Star Award at Aquavi. And, um, okay, it's just a brief of my thoughts of, of Marcus. This is his newest cookbook, The Rise. And this is, it's an amazing book where he's brought together and, and which is something he always does where he's highlighted um, black culture and black chefs and contributors to Black Cuisine in America, and it's an amazing book. This is, I'm so excited. I think I was a year or so, or no, it was longer than that. But the Tribune, when we awarded him the book of the year in 2006 for the book that I mentioned before, and this was, he had the cover story, and this is one I was so excited and proud about, Marcus. And this is an early picture, and I think that's still the Aquavie. I wanted to show the, I wonder, that's interesting. I wanted to show my dad. There's a picture of uh, Marcus, my dad, and me in the test kitchen at the Tribune. And my dad had said, when he walked out, my dad was thrilled to meet him. And my dad had said, now there's a remarkable young man. And he said, "More, he's, he's honest. He said, follow him. He's going to be something amazing. And then on his way out, my dad said, and he's also a very respectful and humble young man. And that's what I have always felt about, about Marcus. So um, I will go on to start asking questions. And um, if you, Marcus, welcome. Thank you, Donna. <laughs> thank you, Scott. I'm very happy to it's, be here. To and thank you for the introduction. Always nice mm -hmm. to speak to you. Uh, I wanted you to pronounce, you were born in Ethiopia and your birth name, could you pronounce that? Sure. Um, I was adoption is pretty amazing. I was born Kasahun uh, Kasahun Segai, which is a very common name in Ethiopia. And um, just like what we're going through right now, like a pandemic here, I was Ethiopia had a huge pandemic in tuberculosis in the early seventies, and uh, my mother passed away. Me and my sister survived, and we got that's how we got adopted. And you were adopted uh, and moved to Sweden. Yeah. And then your grandmother played a role in, in exciting you about cooking. Yeah, my grandmother, Helga, you know, she was, what people don't understand is that, you know, Sweden was very poor when she was growing up. Mm. So um, through, she was living a middle class life, 
but her DNA was out of poverty. So which meant nose to tail way before there was a word like uh-huh. nose to tail. It's just what you did. When you enter her house, there was always a stew or a stock in the back. There was always a bread either that had been baked or was about to proof. There was always fruit or berries to pickle and preserve. Uh, her kitchen table was always a pile of either apples that need to be jarred or so it was an ongoing um uh very active kitchen and um i just have some fond memories and the fact that i can trade off her lessons uh 40 plus years later is it's unbelievable wonderful um today is president's day and i wondered if you could share some of your experiences with or your with um, president with President Obama. Yeah, I've been fortunate to cook for several presidents. Uh, you know, Clinton way back in the day, and um, uh, and the Bush family, hmm. uh, both senior and 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 uh, so on. And then also, of course, President Obama. Um, and uh, I mean, cooking the state dinner was an amazing opportunity. Um, it was also uh, a way to start thinking about what are state dinners. Up until that point, the state dinners were all French, which we thought made sense if there were a French dinner, but not if there, in this case, was an Indian dinner. So we felt that why don't we rethink that, reimagine what that could be. And together with Sam Cass and the former First Lady Michelle Obama, we we focused on vegetarian food because Mr. Singh, Prime Minister Singh at that point, was vegetarian. So just as much as you would have a guest of honor coming to your house and he or she would be vegetarian, Donna, you, you wouldn't make a big meat meal. You would make a vegetarian focus. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and, and um, I'll never forget it. And uh, I had the chance to cook for the Obamas a bunch of other times when they came to Harlem to Red Rooster. Now, yesterday was Valentine's Day, and can you share with us your Valentine? Yes, my wife, Maya, and I, we had a wonderful Valentine where I cooked uh, as well, had some champagne, and I cooked Dover Soul with a coconut butter sauce, mm. and uh, I, we made, I, I made some uh, really nice broccoli with a little bit of soy and berbera, like Ethiopian spice, just to wanted to do something light. Um, and sold for me, it's a light fish. And um, yeah, it was, we had a wonderful time. And your, your life now with, um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, do you, would you feel like describing that in terms of you personally and your restaurants, as well as all restaurants? Well, I, I, I do think that this is, by far the hardest time we as a, as a food family, as a hospitality family have come through in this country. Obviously it's almost a year ago, we closed Red Rooster traditionally and we became a community kitchen and we served over 220,000 meals between March 15 and October 15 of this year. And it was just not the number, but it's also who came to the line and what does it mean to be a restaurant during the pandemic to serve the neediest. So we 
in many ways, it was the most important year, but also as hospitality workers, we also very resilient and strong. We still opened Red Rooster in Overtown in Miami. We had to close it, we had to open it, we had to close it, we had to open it many times. But I do think there is a resilience in hospitality work that is very special. And I'm proud to say that we did finally reopen it and Red Rooster in Harlem is back. It actually started this weekend with indoor dining again, only 25%, but it's a start. And I'm extremely, I don't think I've ever been prouder of my community, both the Red Rooster family, but also hospitality for the other 11 million people that work in independent restaurants in this country. It's been hard, um, but we can get through it. And I tell you, in particularly, I'm worried about black restaurants because historically, we don't have the same access to finance. Uh, we don't have the same access to generational wealth. And to get over this six months bridge now, 41% of African-American businesses have already closed. And this is their family savings. And uh, m- most of them will not come back. And in, in, in because of that, we started out of the rise, actually. We started a fund it's called Black Business Matters Matching Fund, where we give out grants. We started together with Uber Eats and we give out grants to black businesses um, because they're gonna not survive unless they don't need more debt, they need grants. You, you mentioned the, um, the Oberton in Florida, the restaurant, it's opened again, you said? Yeah, well, definitely, definitely, yeah. And that was fascinating for me to read about it and see you there and to see that um, it was in a section of Miami that was uh, there. There were only two places in that whole part in in all of Miami and all of these surrounding area back in the day where black people could live, and at the time it had been called Colored Town, and that was uh, and it was called the uh, the Miami Harlem, and then um, it was closed down. It was urban renewal when they put the highway right through the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And it suffered and suffered. And everyone is recognizing you for being part of bringing it back together with your fabulous restaurant where everyone is is flocking, including mm. you have celebrities that have been recently there. Didn't someone celebrate their birthday there recently? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, Dwayne Wade came and, and the many met the mayor and everybody. But, you know, it's... Um, as a black person, we've been called many names, right? So we have, and the places where we lived have been called many things. But I also think that we have a lot of strengths. And it's my duty to open the restaurant because for the 90 people that work there, their choices are not the same. They might not get government assistance. So their choices, uh, they have Red Rooster or nothing. So... When I, you're driven by a higher learning, by a higher higher compass, you have to open. The, the choices are just not the same. So um, I just feel like we are doing something that is very, very important for us, uh, not just because it's important to open the restaurant for us as owners, but it's important for the people that work there and for the people that 
are attracted to come to Overtown. You know, a restaurant, the word restaurant, Don, as you know, means to restore your community. And if you have a restaurant, it changes the traffic of that community. People come to the place, then maybe otherwise would just drive by the place. And it creates a worth in that community that you wouldn't have otherwise. It, it speaks to one of the things um, I mentioned earlier, that book, The Soul of a New Cuisine, which is the book that brought, for me, an understanding and such gratitude that you published it um, and that made me your forever fan and your forever supporter. And Thank that you. was the fact that you came, here you were, and I could not understand how someone from Sweden could come to this country and appreciate um, Black culture and Black and all of that. And yet one of the things you described, what, you know, that every, when you are Black in this country, you might be from Sweden, but people recognize you as a Black person. And culturally, you were eating, and, you know, since you, when you were at Aquabee, um, you were eating in Harlem and it made the decision to move to Harlem to be closer to, you felt this tug, tug back to Ethiopia and tug back to Harlem and a tug to black people that every black person can recognize. And what I appreciated most about your book was how you, you took the whole continent of Africa, which I used to say, it's not a country, it's a continent and it's separate and all that. But what also I learned that uh, Dubois said that um, it was there are 50 ethnic groups from Africa, the continent, the West African, that moved that were enslaved in America. So here we were, 50 ethnic groups just rumbled together, and that's where the our we started to do that. So, could you tell us a little bit about bringing together the whole continent into the cookbook? Sure. Well, Donna, you know, blackness is complex and it's layered. And what's important, as you know, with storytelling and publishing books is it's important as black people that we tell our narrative and start unpacking its very complex and layered uh, journey. And uh, very often, if we are part of a book or part of something, we get two lines or but it's not told from our journey. And that's why it gets confusing for everybody. And um, blackness is, has, you know, black excellence have added so much to America. And my goal with this journey, whether it's the rice or the red rooster, is you have to acknowledge a couple of things. We failed to talk about food and culture when it comes to black culture in this country. And we have an opportunity to redo that, reimagine that we can have a more delicious, intimate relationship with one another, not just from Black people, but as Americans, right? And there's five original cuisines in America that stems out of the Black diaspora. And they're all American. Barbecue, Southern, Low Country, Cajun, and Creole. So right there, you have to understand how different those cuisines are because people came from different places at different times, you know? And then you add Caribbean to that, and then you add immigration to that. So, you know, like I said, blackness is vast, it's not monolithic, 
it's completely, completely a unique journey as we come to America. And it needs to be talked about in that way. And we can have uncomfortable conversation because out of that comes learning. And that's what, you know, it's not a coincidence that it's 15 years between Soul of a New Cuisine and The Rise. I wanted Soul of a Cuisine to be first about the continent and its relationship to America. And I want The Rise to be speaking more about Black excellence in this country. So we have to unpack, and that's why we focus on about 45 people in the book, because it shows that everyone doesn't come to food as a Black person the same way. And also, it takes not just Black chefs. It takes food writers like yourself. It takes generational uh, um, storytelling, but also it takes scholars. And there's so many different ways to be part of food today that wasn't before. So that's what I love about Usai and the book. By the way, Donna, you know this. A book like The Rise takes four years to make. And two years before that, I always think about, is this a book? Is this an article? Should I test it as a blog? It's more than a post. And that is two years of me just going through something in my head. And then eventually I decide to publish and then eventually bring the team around that. And then that four-year journey, you and I just started to talk about this book. I have notes of you and I talking about this book around 2012, 2013. And then it was just like, but in between that, I did the Red Rooster Cookbook. And then after that, so this is a, a long, long journey. What made you know it was time to go ahead with it? I think many things. Uh, creating Red Rooster as a distinct restaurant. You know, I moved to Harlem 2002 and opened Red Rooster 2010. Then I wanted to launch the Red Rooster Cookbook. And when that came out in 16 or 15, I felt it was time. Now when we establish that restaurant, that brand, that the corners of that pillars are strong, the foundation is strong. Now it's time. And it was, the rise is not about my story. It's really as a curator to bring other people's voices to it. And it can also work as a hub. If you, you know, I always want to do books that was not around when I was a kid. So if you're a young person like Patricia Gonzalez in the book, she's 17 when we started, she can now found you. She can now email Usai. She can now go to someone like Kwame or Eduardo. Those were not my options. So that shows there's a sign of progress and that's important. I, I have your chapters here that were, um, there are five chapters, right? And the first of, is next, where black food is headed, chefs and recipes on the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. There's something about that chapter that stands out for you? Yeah, I mean, it's an introduction of that. We're not, you know, it's like the future. The future is exciting. You know, I think that the future will also be that we go back to the continent the way uh, Stevie went back to see Fela right? And came back with a different album, right? So, so much of that, you think about that back and forth. It's not just that we go to Paris and London or 
Europe as reference point. Now we can go to Lagos, Joburg, and Addis as re reference point. So that's the next, you know, it both from a youth, but also where we travel through both technology and access. And Remix is integrating the cultures. Black cooking integrates many cultures and adapts to many different ingredients, methods, and geographies. And I, what I love so much about every single one of your books and about your uh, feeling about uh, our cultural recipes and, and, and all cooking is flavors and the mm -hmm. spices and whatever that yeah. is that you love and that you introduce us to that yeah. really worked that we, what do you have anything to say about spicing and flavors? Yeah. I mean, first of all, these capitals uh, and spice markets were the first wall streets and still are in large parts of the world. When you go to Damascus or Marrakesh or Addis or Cairo, those markets are currency, right? Spices are currency. And uh, we in America have gone very far away from that. And, you know, you go way back and think about, you know, even the line, I'm a meat and potato guy, is really came out of code words, right? Because I eat the clean meat and potatoes and get the good cuts. And then the slave quarters got the bad cuts. So they have to cure and preserve with spices. Spices were really a currency and a preserving techniques, right? So, so people don't even understand what that means, right? So, so my job is to unpack that, tell that in a way, and then also highlight the flavor combination that spices gives you, right? So there is also understand that America is a very young country. Rituals, cooking rituals from Africa was three, 4,000 years ago. Right, not recipes, but rituals. So it's it's always important to think about it in context and the whys. And you also appreciate that a dash of this and whatever. Yes. That, you know, the the the, um, the science of cookbook writing. Mm -hmm. It you know, it's a tablespoon or a teaspoon or whatever, but so often it depends on on your taste and your family's taste. And you could look at a mix and yeah. No, especially black history is very much oral, right? It's like the blues. It's not written down. It, it's oral. It's from a grandmother to a child. It's oral rituals that either are stemmed or linked to our spirituality or our places or the terroir where we were, right? Think about a dish like shrimp and grits, you know, that really stems in West Africa where you have the broken rice then you think about the traditions of the Carolinas, where you have the rice. So, so, so there is there's a clear connectivity when you eat a jollof rice from Senegal or jambalaya from uh, New Orleans. It's the same dish, and the way we learned about paella, the way we learned to clearly talk about and aspire to go to Italy and have a risotto. We even know what village is from. We need to do the same thing with black food. And it's reminding me of my appreciation about uh, and why, instead of saying, what, how could someone from raised in Sweden understand all of this, that you, your international perspective and your travels and your passion for cooking and for food brought this fresh eye 
and you were still a young man to our cultural food. And the fact that wherever you go in this country, you're a black man and you, you know, you had connections and this and that and people eager to share with you is what makes you so special to me. Mm-hmm. Well, Don, I think it's also about being around excellence, right? Like I live in Harlem. So, you know, my neighbors, someone like Thelma Golden from the Studio Museum, what do you think we talk about? We think about our culture. You know, I live five minutes walking distance from the Apollo. You know, think about the wealth of knowledge that is there. I did the research for Red Rooster 10 blocks away from here, which is Schomburg, right? So you're surrounded by institutions of knowledge. And it's really your job, if you live in this community, to seek out that information and listen, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of know-how in a community like this. So the value proposition of knowledge is around you. And I, I bet you it's all about value proposition. When I see Overtown, I see depths of knowledge or someone might see where someone else might see misery. I don't. And you were a neighbor, Maya Angelou's neighbor, correct? Yes, yes. And shared meals together and she appreciated your cooking. I used to go to North Carolina and cook for her. Mm -hmm. It was great. It was awesome to cook for her. It was great. (laughs) And the Schomburg, you do a lot of research. Yeah. And tell us a little, share with us a little about the Schomburg and why you appreciate it so much. Well, you know, it's it's really a, a center of black history and culture knowledge. And if I suggest these things we talk about blackness, it's not just for black people. It's of black people. It's of America, but it's for everyone. So when I knew that I would open the restaurant just because I'm black, did not know I knew the history of America's journey in terms of civil rights movement properly. And But I do know that the restaurant I imagined would be a center of that. It would be, I was inspired by Miss Leah Chase and Duke Chase. I was inspired by Alberta Wright and Jezebel. I was inspired by Miss B. Smith. And so I knew if we would create this hub, I better know my history. And, you know, I... I I knew I wanted Mr. Dinkins to be my guest. Well, if I'm going to introduce it for him, it needs to look a certain way. It needs to have a certain levels of historical know-how. So it's up to you to do the job. And people were always like, how come you don't open the restaurant? After four years of Harlem or five years of Harlem, I said, I'm not ready. So what do you mean you're not ready? You're here. You're out here cooking. You're doing demos. You're speaking to us. I'm not ready. I know when I'm ready. I knew when I'm ready. And, and then the financial crisis hit. I said, that has nothing to do with me. Uh, I'm ready when we're ready. And, and whether, it, you know, I can't, that's not connected to the stock market. That's when we are ready. So I'm also inspired by your um, bridging generations and your mm-hmm. encouragement of bridging generations. There, even though, and I'm understanding this now, I'm calling myself now a boomer curator but I'm trying to step back so that the generation that's, you know, out there now, the, and I, it was hard to even your generation and the generation before that and let, and hear and listen and not close my ears, but be available to share what I know that they might not understand. And that's something that, that I know that you feel strongly about. Of course. I mean, Donna, like you have to understand that, 
I, you, first of all, I have to acknowledge my privileges, right? And the privileges that I, I'm a crossroad of many things, but to be an immigrant and to be a black immigrant, I wouldn't be here without the civil rights movement. It wouldn't happen. The choices Leah Chase had and the laws she had to break to even be open, she had to break the law to stay open. Those are not my choices. So there were people that fought for that, as you know, and you're part of. So you can't do this work without first saying thank you. So you have to, the little book has to be a look back and acknowledgement. Then it has to be in the present and also peek towards the future. So it has to have past, present, future, right? And then you think about laws, right? And Lyndon B. Johnson would not have changed the laws unless he would have listened to his black chefs. And so very often the black chefs that were activists and part of the movement anonymously were black women. And so as an immigrant, as a black immigrant, those were the privileges that I landed on. So the, the, when, you, you, when you have that, and America is a beacon, a beacon of hope for all of us. And black culture is being made in America, but it's been transported all over the world, right? Whether it is gospel on Sundays, jazz, rock and roll, hip hop today, funk or pop, it's all black culture that becomes America's culture, right? And, you know, those were the things that I had access to, my parents had access to uh, when we were coming up in the 80s. So I knew that I would move to America at some point. You talk about being an immigrant and the third chapter of your book is migration. Mm -hmm. And these are the people from the South who um, moved for a, uh, a better life in the North. And not all were people who were scrounging and trying. And I, I use my parents as an example, who were both college graduates in a family in Mobile, but they did not want their children to grow up where segregation was part of the law. They insisted on that. So they, the month of their marriage in 1950, they moved to Missouri, and uh, wh which was, you know, just maybe a few degrees different because we had to integrate everything we ever did. But your third chapter is migration. And what happened is these migrants then brought their foodways all over, over the country. Could you share something there? Yeah, I mean, the, the Great Migration is, is one of the most fascinating movements in any country, in any part of the world, right? Where between four to six million people from the 1920s to the 1970s, you know, as we think about pop culture, it changed everything in America, right? From music and so on, but also impacted our food tremendously, right? Because if you came out of Virginia, very often the corridor became New York or Boston. If you came, uh, let's say, out of, let's say, Alabama, maybe the corridor became Chicago, Detroit, and, 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 and you went up that way. And then if you're further inland, maybe you went all the way out to the West Coast, right? Well, that has impact on many things because um, we have to pickle and preserve our food as we shift it back and forth. 
uh, once we came to the big cities, we didn't have the farms anymore. So we couldn't cook the food our same the same way. And it really uh, integrated uh, and changed restaurants as well. And, you know, you know, iconic restaurants that we consider, like Sylvia's, for example, and so on, really became uh, what other people thought about as terms of soul food when it came up north. But it's really southern food that traveled through the migration up north. And depending on where you went, right, the food changed a little bit. But the ritual maybe didn't change, but the food changed because it's the, the, the climate is different. But I think it's not just that. It's the music that came with that. It's the sense of hospitality that came with that. And moving from South Carolina to New York City was just as big move as moving from, let's say, uh, Trinidad to Miami. You know, it's a different, it's the same country, but it's really a completely different part of the world. You moved to a place and um, my, my parents only ate seafood in Mobile, mm. you know, because that was there yeah. cheap and whatever. And I went to a school, integrated a school, and they had chili, con carne, and peanut butter sandwiches on the side. Yeah. And my mother was just disgusted, but she, she, she combined both. And that's what's true of the migration. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I, and I think it's important for all of this, for people who are, for whites, who say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's up to you to l- learn it. There are mm-hmm. tons of books now for people to to read and learn, as opposed to, uh, and, and places to go, where you can really learn about these people. Yeah. Montana had um, so many Black had 27 black cooks as part of a cookbook that came out in the 20s. Wow. You don't think about blacks in Montana, and yet that was part of a path, and every state had black middle class that was not reported by the media on Mm -hmm. purpose. Think about the the food of Tulsa in the 20s, how fabulous and how, how high and low it must have been, right? Exactly, exactly. You have legacies number four, and we've talked a lot about it, but anything to add about that? Well, I just think it's important, like there's people like yourself, and then obviously um, way before you, people like Edna Lewis um, and, you know, Miss Leah Chase, but also now someone like yourself and Dr. Jessica Harris and people like Tony Tipton Martin and even Osei that, is from a different generation, but brings that legacy forward. So you have to acknowledge that in the worst of time can also be the best of time. And I say that because it's been very rough for our industry, but when I look around me of just this month specifically, Dawn Davis is now the new head of Bon Appetit magazine, a black woman. Clancy Miller just launched For the Culture, a new magazine focusing on black young, black women cooking. We have um, Mashama Bailey just launched a cookbook, right? So, and Tony. And Tony Tipton Tony Martin, of course, and, and the list goes on and on and on in leadership positions. So America is changing and it's changing in a big way. And this is a very, very good time to be in food in America in a more diverse 
dialogue. And the way, one of the significant parts about these roles being filled by people of color and black women is, and black men and women, is that that word that you used earlier called nuance. Mm -hmm. That other people can read something and research something and learn something. But we have a nuance having lived it that we've never been able to, or we very rarely able to share. And that's what I think we're going to be seeing coming mm-hmm. up in the future. No, but also, I think you have to understand, we've learned so much through magazines, through aspirational storytelling, whether it's through TV or film or tourism, about Italy and Spain and France. And these are fabulous places. We can even say, here's where this dish comes from. But we have to do the same about our own country and our own people. You, We can do both through technology and all the stuff we're doing. We are all multifaceted intelligent people and we have to have compassion and empathy to be able to do both hey, Donna, that, uh-huh. Donna, this is scott uh we've got about 13 minutes left would you be able to open up the absolutely uh, absolutely and you'll, you'll explain to people how they can go about it thanks to everybody for being here and for sharing this time with us and, and um if you have a question that you'd like to ask if you'd like to unmute yourself, then I can. I will take a look at the unmuted people and have you. Um, let's see here. Have you? Why don't we do that? Yeah. Okay. Here's yeah. a question. Let's see here. Okay. Here's a question. Marcus, how do you feel about new African cuisine, such as is it Ikoi in London? Yeah, I mean, I think it's where there is a great young chef in the book, um, uh, Michael Ikebet, that he talks, he's in Lagos right now, and he has a very progressive restaurant in Lagos. And uh, this will happen two ways. Once we can start traveling again, um, we'll go to uh, places like that. But at the same time, the continent is, uh, there's a huge middle class coming up from the continent. And that's where we're going to learn the most of it. But there's also a lot of uh, African first generation immigrants in this country, in, in, in Houston and in New York uh, and, and it, in Chicago as well, that we will keep learning from. And that's the most important part. Here's a question from Jackie. Uh, what dish do you personal, personally feel to be a comfort meal? Well, it, it, it depends. You know, I grew up on the water, so I would say any seafood. Like, I grew up with mackerel um, that my, me and my, my uncles taught me how to catch. And uh, outside our house, we had coarse potatoes, but also like fennel and dill and horseradish. So if I would run outside and fresh chives. So my grandmother would send me out. I would run, pick up potatoes, wash them make a mash, add in fresh horseradish, uh, sear the mackerel, and maybe squeeze some lemon and dill on top of it. That was lunch, right? That was lunch four days, five days a week. You know, so that, would, that looks like comfort food to me. Very similar to the way, if you're from the South, the way a fish and grits would look, mm-hmm. you know? And this is from Roberg. Do you feel that um, Black people are more accepted in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark? You know, one of the blessings of being black is that you cannot l- look for acceptance. 
<laughs> you have to live your life and celebrate it. And the word easy is never part of our vocabulary. And there's actually a strength in that. The quicker you learn the strength in that, um, there will always be people that will mentor you and be for you. And there will always be a minority that will be against you. And I think Black people have a very specific journey on that, but so has other people. You look at what's happening uh, with a horrible race relationship that has happened post uh, the pandemic, how a lot of Asian Americans feel insecure because of the previous um, sad um, theatrical behavior of the former administration, right? So um, there will always be people that will be for you and there will always be people that will be against you. But one thing that I have learned as a chef, you have to be humble enough to do the work and learn your craft and arrogant enough not to listen to anybody. That's great. I like that a lot. This is from Judy. And I know, think I know the answer to this because I know how she feels about you. How much has Jessica Harris informed your knowledge of African-American food? I mean, Dr. Jessica Harris is, is uh, just like you, Donna, but also like Miss Leah Chase. There's a long history of some majority women that, some are very known, like Dr. Jessica Harris, and some are not so known, but that doesn't mean that the wealth is not there. Now I can tell you 10 amazing people that has informed me, like an Alberta Wright, like someone like Tony Tipton Martin and Dr. Jessica Harris. But so there is, I stand here because there always been a lot of wealth and knowledge in our communities. A lot of it went by anonymously, but that didn't mean that the work wasn't there and the knowledge wasn't there. This one, and we're come, I know we're coming to, is um, from Sharon. In the book, The Warmth of Other Sons, um, we talk about people bringing sweet potatoes from the South to New York on the train and their luggage because the sweet potatoes did not taste the same in the North. Do you have a thought about that? All I know is that sweet potatoes are suddenly like, you know, the, the new collards. <laughs> you know, everybody is discovering them. No, but I mean, food, I mean, food is terroir, right? So it will grow very different when you have maybe an average heat of 65 to 70 a year round versus when you have, you know, New York, we have very strong four seasons, hot summer, cold winter. Uh, we have a real spring and we have a very important fall, right? And it wasn't, trust me, on those train rides, it wasn't just sweet potato. There was no, no. Uh, smoked ham. There were so many other things that were part of it. And um, um, I just think it's fabulous that we're on a journey where people are learning more about our culture. And also immigration has added that. We've learned a lot through Jamaican culture. We learn a lot from Haiti and Trinidad, for example, just to mention some, where the where we grow similar things because the climate in a place like Trinidad is more similar to West Africa. Um, this is from Sharon. In your PBS series, No Passport Required, it is your PBS series, No Passport Required, going to return. I think when we can, I mean, that show, and I love making that, doing that show, but the show is really based on traveling. So when, 
and traveling a lot. <laughs> so uh, it was probably about 100 people making that show. And it's, I can't do it. It's not a studio show. It's not something that, it's not a drive-by. So not until we fully deep tissue can travel um, do I know that. So at this point, hopefully maybe in 22, but in 21, it's hard to create a show like that because it's fully based on going to every aspect, every corner of America and tell the untold story about immigration and how it leads to American food. Lucy wants to know about your thoughts on current discussions around cultural appropriation. I think we're having very important conversations right now about that and we're learning. And like I said before, it's important to have some uncomfortable, hard discussions because out of that comes growth, right? You, you think about how important Black Lives Matters movement all over the world has been to creating a more just and equal uh, uh, communities, not just in America, but all over the world. And it's important to, to have these conversations and it informs, sometimes it happens in public and sometimes it happens in that office. And it's very, very important. So we evolve and it makes you think about, oh, I didn't think about that. This doesn't always have to have a malice intent, but it's important for us to start as whatever the majority is to start thinking about, oh, that's offensive. And again, as black people, we've, we know this very much because we've been called so many different names um, and we can understand how it feels to be, to be unheard. And, and not being acknowledged for the excellence that we brought into certain, to many conversations. Rayanne adds to that with uh, about recipe development um, in terms of cu cultural appropriation when you are not of that culture. Thoughts on how to approach recipe development. Sure, I mean, we, we were very fortunate to work with Juwanda and Osei, two amazing people, Osei as a co-writer and Juwanda as the recipe developer. and. Um, you know, we had a lot of conversations about this, right? Uh, and that's why we did the recipes in honor of. Um, and that's also, I think it's super important that you acknowledge the person, you acknowledge the ethnicity, you acknowledge the locale, and then you jump off from there. It doesn't take a lot to say, I was inspired by my trip to Jamaica. I didn't invent the jerk. Well, here's my friend Jerome Grant that is of that culture, right? Whatever that sharing knowledge and sharing where you've been inspired by or where you, who you learned something from, it's a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Excellent. I agree so much. Harp Harpender, uh, do you find connections between the cuisines of the ancient cultures of Indian subcontinent in Africa? Well, I mean, if you go down the East Coast, East Coast corridor in Africa from, let's say, Kenya all the way down to Durban, that's a lot of Indian culture in Zanzibar, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, all the way down to South Africa, to Durban. Even the way, you know, Gandhi's first place where he came to was Durban when he entered the continent of Africa. And if you go to Durban, you will find amazing Indian food that is African, that has a lot of African touches. And there's a market there called Victoria Street Market that is absolutely fabulous. And it's basically half Indian and half Black South African. 
Wow. Um, we have a couple more questions and then we're going to um, to close. It was our promise to you. And it's this one is uh, from Nathan. What do you think is currently the most exciting food city in the U.S.? Well, um, it's a, it's an interesting question now because a lot of places are still closed or just haven't opened up. So I would say somewhere where there's really warm weather, like a Houston um, or Miami or New Orleans, like places like that that are at full capacity cooking. Because, you know, you think about Chicago, New York, or even San Francisco, we're not going at full steam because we can't. And um, so I do think the, the, southern, the southern sort of hemisphere uh, is, is much more vibrant at this moment. Uh, and it might change in a year from now, but I would say a place like Houston uh, or New Orleans. And, and the last one here is uh, from Bonnie and Brad. Could Chef Samuelson pl- uh, speak briefly about the influence of the Gullup culture? Mm. Well, I mean, if you're in the Carolinas and you think about the low, low country cuisine to this uh, Angola, you think about the incredible rice dishes, you think about uh, so much of uh, the link between West Africa and Gala. It is when you're there, you see it. And it's probably the most natural link. I would say New Orleans is probably like more Caribbean, I would say. But Charleston and outside Charleston, you see Senegal, you see Gambia, you see West Africa in a way that nowhere else in America will you see it that clearly. And that comes out in the cuisine, in the Gullah cuisine. Chef, thank you so much for this wonderful um, sharing of your information and um, for a long career expressing um, curiosity, gratitude, um, humility, and sharing it with all of us. Um, So we will, if there are any questions, we'll have other questions, you can respond to the to the link to the website. I well, we that. want to say thank you to you, Donna, for you inspire us. And I know a lot of amazing things that you are working on. And the fact now that you are linked with Harvard, I think is amazing for Harvard. <laughs> and we thank you for everything that you provided and inspired us and all the information. So it takes a lot of, um, it's, we're, in a, we're in a community and we're each member in the community are providing and you're part of that. So we thank you, Donna, so much. Thank you. I had a visiting Neiman fellowship in 2015 and mm-hmm. that's where I, the Schomburg, that's where I, uh, or the, um, I started to, to really be able to do research. There are cookbooks. I thought I knew everything. There was a cookbook, a woman from Iowa, black woman who wrote a column in 1934 and it would be, it was me. And so mm-hmm. all of these things that were not brought out for us to know are, are here for us to discover now. I'm going to turn it back to Scott. Thank you. Excuse me. And thank you, Scott. And thank you again, dear Marcus. Thank you so much. And thank Marcus, you. first, before I officially close the meeting, could you hold up a copy of your latest wonderful book, The Rise? And it's wonderful. 
and it goes Kathy or can, well, it's on a small screen, but anyway, that's Marcus's latest book. Uh, I'm, I'm estimating another award winner for him. And Marcus, thank you so much for your, your talk tonight. We pride ourselves in the almost 28 years we've been around for, 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 for presenting food, great food for thought for our group. So yours was exceptionally wonderful, soulful food for thought. Thank you so much. And, uh, Good luck, and let's let, can't wait till the pandemic passes. Take care, and thank you, everyone. Zoom you again on our upcoming programs. Good night. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you.